He has the ear of the governor and so many other people in Florida politics. I, it's not even fair to say rising star because I guess when you're like 44, you're an established star at this point. Nick Iarossi of Capital City Consulting, a longtime friend. How are you? I'm good, Peter. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. You know, um, I'm a little bit more introverted than the average bear. And so, you know, this isn't this isn't horrible for me. I, I feel bad for, you know, the Amazon delivery guy out there who's hustling and putting himself at risk and all the, you know, bartenders and waiters I knew that are out of work and stuff like that. Um, so, you know, trying to do what I can to keep um, the takeout delivery business model going. Um, and uh, yeah, I think we're going to make it through it. How are your kids doing? They're good. I mean, I think they've adjusted really well to um, to uh, online learning and, and at home. And my wife's been doing a great job uh, keeping them you know, focused and disciplined and getting their work done. I'm actually pretty surprised about how seamless it went, how well the school. Sorry about that, folks. Uh, Jay, the uh, editor and producer here, had a little technical difficulty, but we're going to jump right back in uh, with Nick and Peter. They're going to be talking about the reopening the economy in Florida. Now, in the reopening process, will also be methodical, and uh, and we can get our economy back up and going. Because, as you know, Peter, I mean, we've got a an economy based very strong on, on small businesses and on tourism, and we've got to make people feel comfortable that they can go back to restaurants and theme parks and hotels and vacation rentals and all these other places um, so that we can get our economy back up and going. And I think that's, you know, that's what this task force is for. And that's what the governor's going to, you know, going to announce here in the next day or two is how we're going to reopen back up. So I think people are excited about that. So I want you to play along with the theory that I have, I, um, which is going to just get you in all sorts of trouble. Um, I, (laughs) I, I blame Shane Strum. Um, (laughs) but it's a good blame. Like Michelle, when I told Michelle that I'm playing with this like funny blog post, she's like, funny how? Um, and so my argument is he is basically, uh, did you see any of the movies, the Olympus has fallen or, uh, London has fallen or angel has fallen. Yeah, it's been a while, but yes. All right. So there's the character Mike Banning played by Gerard Butler um, you know, he's this guy, he's the secret service guy who, you know, protects the president when the president is invariably, there's an assassination attempt on him. Right. And like, like, I wonder why at some point somebody hasn't said, Hey, you know what? Like there's been like a uptick in, in, in assassination attempts while you've been around. We're not blaming you. We're not saying it's your fault, but you know, maybe, you know, we're trying to figure out the variables here. And yeah, we appreciate you saving everybody. And that's great. But, you know, every couple of years, there's, you know, another attack. So Shane Strum, (laughs) I'm just like, (laughs) poor Strummy, you know, I'm just thinking like he gets like crisped at the tail end of his term in office, the recession, the, the transition to... Are you, you saying know, Shane is bad luck? I think Shane is the Mike Banning. He, it's so, not his fault. He's a great... So I'm going like, to say it a different way, Peter. <laughs> I'm going to say that, thank God we have Shane Strum there during tough times. Because ah, I will... I, okay. I'll tell you. I will tell you, honestly. There is no 
one that works harder than Shane right. Strom. I mean, he's killing himself 24-7. I, I worry about the guy's health because he's he's just he just is constantly at the office and constantly working. I mean, he's he's the kind of guy you want there, you know, helping the governor, though, in time of crisis, right? I mean, you, I think – you know, I think people end up in the in certain spots during the right times for a reason. And this is an unprecedented event with a pandemic. It's one that I hope we have never have to go through again. But, you know, the reality is um, this governor has been challenged by something very difficult, probably the most difficult thing you'll ever face as a, as, as a governor. Um, and he's got a chief of staff uh, doing the same thing. And, 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 uh, and I think you know, again, the data shows everything they're doing is correct. And then if you look at, I'll, I'll throw out a, uh, a shout to Jared Moskowitz too. I mean, he's doing a hell of a job at DEM. I mean, his uh, disaster preparedness uh, experience uh, in his uh, previous profession has proven to be invaluable during, um, during a pandemic. Who would have known, right? I mean, you've got hurricane preparation that he knows very well, but he's he's been crushing it during this pandemic and has been a, a huge resource. So I think when you look at the governor and, and you look at Shane and you look at the team they've put together, the Moskowitzes of the world and, and the agency secretaries and all the folks in the EOG staff, I mean, I don't think people really appreciate how much they're working. I mean, it is seven days a week, 24 hours a day. These people are not sleeping, uh, trying to protect everybody in the state of Florida. And, and um and again, I keep going back to this, but the data shows they're doing a good job on protecting people. And so all that hard work is paying off. So I'm glad they're all there. I, um, I'm not going to push back on any part of that other than to say where I have been most critical is I just wish somebody knew how to take a victory lap or say thank you here. Um, and I, I, I feel like there's an adversarial nature to the to some elements in the Capitol press corps, they are just antagonistic for no mm -hmm. reason. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I said this on another pod with someone, I'm like, and this is not somebody that's necessarily against Ron DeSantis, but I'm like, has Craig Pittman ever liked anything anybody has done for the last <laughs> 20 years? And I'm like, I'm serious. I'm like, you know, if, if Rob Bradley announces, hey, we're gonna give 800 million to Florida forever, Craig Pittman's going to write, you know, about the the 100 million that's not given. Right. And I I really think, you know, and I go, I, I know I get accused of playing both sides and I, it, 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 it's not me playing both sides. It's how I feel. I, I, on one moment, I'm upset with the governor because I feel like he's attacking the media needlessly. But then like, I see literally as he's rolling out policy, I see some of the Capitol Press Corps, you know, asking, you know, random tangential questions. You're like, hey, can you just give the guy a second to finish out the one policy he's announcing before you ask about the other? And I get it. They want to hold everybody accountable. But when you have, you know, Fabiola Santiago or whatever from the Miami Herald writing the pieces that they do and the, some of the editorial board stuff, I can see why he takes this adversarial tone um because they don't give him any quarter so why should they give why should he give any back all of that being said man i just wish right now he could just get out of his own way um and you know like just like not get into the well some people said this was going to be a lot worse and it was going to be like italy and i'm like these guys were scientists that they're putting together models like, like, I don't think that they had, they weren't betting on the 
on the Florida Florida State game. I mean, this is what they do. I, I think it was coming from a good place, all of the modeling and all of the forecasting. So I don't, I, I, I don't like that part. I don't like that adversarial part. And I wish, I wish there was a little bit less of that. I guess. Um, yeah, I mean, it has gotten adversarial, but I will say that um, I think, uh, you know, doctors and epidemiologists in a situation like this are going to put out the, the worst possible scenarios to, to, to cover their asses, quite frankly, right? I mean, they, they want to make sure that they're, they're not going to get yelled at if it turned out to be less than it was, but they're going to get yelled at if it turns out to be much worse than it actually was. And I think the governor, again, <clears throat> was you know looking at the assumptions and the models and just disagreed with the assumptions. And he's in a position, too, don't forget, that you, you have to not just look at what the infection rates are going to be, but also take a holistic view for the entire state and make determinations of the economy. Uh, we had two hospitals closed down here in the state of Florida, two rural hospitals. Like, what does that do to public health? I mean, the fact that they're not doing electives um, uh, uh, I think was was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back for them. So you have to well, take when you're laying off doctors, other things into account, right? So you when have you're to laying take off doctors out account. of one wing while the other wing is having to deal with um, emergencies. Yeah, I get it. I mean, listen, you know, here's and, the thing. And, but I think, but I think also, Peter, if you look at the governor um, over the last five or six of his press conferences, he has pushed back some on the misinformation out there because I think you know. I, I'll say it. I think he's been treated unfairly a lot uh, in the type of information that's being pushed out. It is a very gotcha type environment, it seems like. And you don't have anybody saying, well, you know what? He's kind of right. I mean, the numbers haven't turned out to be as bad as everyone expected. And turns out the policies that the state of Florida and his administration has put forth have worked. Um, it's just on to the next gotcha. It's hammering him on this, hammering him on, on that. It so is on to the next gotcha. I think that that's part of that is the media's fault as well, you know, and I don't know. I'm, I don't know how you solve that relationship. Um, you know, models are self-defeating, you know, by staying at home, we have beaten this thing. And I, right. you know, I, I go back, I like, I don't understand who quite honestly is telling folks to do these things. Like, you know, some of the rhetoric out of the speaker's office, I'm like, I just don't even know what it, I don't know what it, it um, uh, I don't know what it is going to accomplish um, in that. And I think you can already see it now. Like people are done with the, we're all gonna die. Now it's, we can't get the unemployment um, system working, which totally sucks, don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. But now it's like, we have, we've just pivoted from one gotcha to the next. Correct. And there will be a third and a fourth gotcha. Uh, you know, God forbid there is any semblance of a spike Anywhere in the state, it will be, you know, it'll be, oh, we told you so. Um, and Which, as we reopen, there will be. I mean, people need to have those expectations, right? I mean, that there are going, as people start to congregate again, as the state starts to reopen, there are going to be ebbs and flows of, of COVID-19. And people need to be prepared for that. So now all we can, we're entering a mitigation phase where we have to start mitigating the spread and keeping capacity at our hospitals available, but also allowing them to open up and do electives and making sure that we have enough PPE equipment and respirators, which I think we do. The state's done a great job of, uh, of stockpiling and, and, and getting prepared for, um, for any possible surge. But citizens now have to start taking responsibility for themselves. Let's reopen responsibly, but 
you know, if you're really nervous because you have a comorbidity condition and you're over 65, then you shouldn't go to a restaurant, right? You should take additional steps to stay home. But if you're a middle-aged or young person without any other uh, underlying conditions um, and you want to go back out and you think that's the best decision for you, then fine. But just everyone needs to know that there's probably going to be additional cases of this stuff uh, going around, but it's not as deadly as once thought. And all right, um, let me, for some, it is. Let me. All right. So, yes, agreed. Like, we have to, like, until there's a vaccine, there is going to be further yes. death. Um, yes. Number two, um, it is very likely, uh, short of a vaccine, that we will have both influenza and COVID 19 impacting us at the same time, which we are mm-hmm. like, they didn't want to admit that at the press conference the other day, but that's not even like, that's not a possibility. That is a probability. I mean, we mm-hmm. always have, we always have seasonal flu and now we've got another thing running around here without a vaccine or treatment. So that's likely going to happen. I think the only weakness in what you're saying, if I may, is, all right, so these people make these decisions to go out and do what they're going to do. The beaches in Pinellas, um, are going to open again uh, today. Those people, um, they if they do get sick or what have you, and that's what we're saying. We're saying, hey, listen, here's 100 M&Ms. Only one of them is going to get you sick. Do you want to eat the M&Ms or not? And I think people now, having not had M&Ms for a while, are ready to start eating M&Ms again. Only problem is when that person does eat the M&M and does get sick, we don't have a healthcare financing system to take care of that person. And so uninsured 30-year-old bartender who interacts with people over and over again, this isn't Sweden, you know, this is not some of the other places with universal healthcare, and I'm not even advocating for universal healthcare. That person then does become our problem again because he goes to the emergency room uh, because he doesn't have healthcare. And then we now have a you know, we have a $50,000 emergency room case. And that's, I, I know we're not going to solve, you and I are not going to solve that on this podcast, but I don't think you can just say, oh, let people go make their own decisions because, all right, we, again, here's the second thing. Our children who are, pro- I mean, we're blessed with the fact that, you know, children seem to uh, not suffer from co- the impact of COVID-19, but they do carry it. And they're, if we open up the schools again, they're going to be interacting with a lot of people who the 62-year-old teacher with an underlying condition, is, you know, through no choice of her own, is now going to be in, impa- impacted there. And so we have to mitigate that as well. And I, so I don't think it's just a live and let live kind of situation. I think it's live and kind of let live, I guess, for lack of a better Yeah, but that's what, I think that's what's going to happen. Don't get me wrong. I don't think it's, we're not flipping a switch and saying, all right, everybody go back out. You know, it's safe now. Uh, it's a, it's going to be a responsible incremental reopening with social distancing measures in place. So I, I think we're saying the same thing here. You've, you've got to do it in a responsible way to keep the spread slow and to protect people. And it's also incumbent upon individuals to protect themselves and evaluate their individual situations. I mean, I, I think uh, obviously closing schools the remainder of the year was the right decision um, for the very reasons that you mentioned. Um, but, uh, but we can reopen in a responsible way to keep uh, the spread low and to keep mitigating the impact so that we don't overwhelm the healthcare system. 
Um, but eventually, right, we, we got to do it and until there's a vaccine. I mean, we can't we can't stay in our homes for, you know, 16 or 18 months or however long a vaccine right. is going to take. Hopefully it takes hopefully it takes less. Seems like they're making good progress. So are you uh, because I know this podcast is going to be one of the more popular and it's because we really don't know much about you. I mean, you're not a public figure, but you're arguably I mean, I've put you in my magazine as an influence 100. Um, I, I think if I was chopping that down to influence 25, you would be um, certainly in that category as well. Um, we don't the the popular you know Florida doesn't know a lot about Nick Irasi. What do they need to know about you? I mean, I know you're like like I want to dispel the myths of like lobbyists because I know you as one of I think you're one of the I don't know I hate to say this you're one of the decent people that I know. You, I mean you're a very sharp businessman, I get that. Uh, but, you know, you're always with your daughters uh, and your family and you're doing the right thing. Um, I, I There's not a whiff of scandal. Um, you know, what, what does the world need to know about you and how you go about things, how you're approaching um, this kind of situation? Well, I appreciate that, Peter. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, like, I, son I guess of a bitch, it, you were just going to ask about the about the corona. But see, that's the thing. I got you on here. Everybody knows. I'll, I'll frame it another way. Brian Ballard, you know, alpha dog of the lobbying industry. There's no. I mean, he's like the John Morgan of lobbyists. He's always quoted, and mm. and Paul Bradshaw has been around for so long that you know he's doing profiles in the New York Times and he's writing op eds about you know sustainability and things like that. And then Ronnie Book has been around for so long and so much has been written about him that we kind of know his bio. But if we're saying if the, you know, the other fourth, you know, person right there, that'd probably be you. Um, And you're not Max Stepanovich. You're not always going out there and getting a quote. So it's like, you know, as people listen to this podcast, what do they need to know about where you're coming from um, as you approach government and what's important to you? I, I think and maybe it's I, I don't know. I, I think it's probably as I see the lobbying profession as just that a profession. So I try and, you know, act in a professional manner and how I approach it and um you know, be as as uh, uh I guess detail oriented and substantive as I am glad handing, right? I mean there's obviously relationships and fundraising and all those things are very important, but so is substance. And maybe it's the law school training. I just kind of approach lobbying as, uh, as being an attorney and you want to be able to make good and compelling arguments. Um, you want to explain why the things you're advocating for is, is good for the state or good for a legislator's district, um, or how it can be helpful and shed it, you know, kind of place it in the right light without at the same time kind of given all sides of the story so that you establish a level of trust with people. Um, probably one of the best things that I've always tried to implement in my career that I think is, has saved me a lot, uh, both personally and professionally is to always take the long view. And that was something my dad always passed on to me is mm. always take the long view. Um, you know, you can always make more money or get more, more wins, probably taking a short term view and maybe stretching the limits more than you should. But, um, but that hurts you in the long run. So kind of the actions that I take. Um, I've always tried to take the long view so that uh, I always maintain credibility and trust 
with the people that I'm working with. And, you know, so far it's, it's worked. And the other thing my dad always told me was, is dance with what brung you in. So, um, I'm just continuing along that path. And then, you know, the other stuff is, is really life work balance. And you know, I think my, my wife and daughters would tell you that I, I work too much. Um, but I try and, and spend a lot of quality time with them and especially with my daughters to have a, a, a strong relationship with them and do things. You know, we do daddy daughter trips and other one-on-one trips, uh, together so that, um, I'm spending time both individually with them and, um, and together with them so that I have a, uh, you know, my own relationship with my daughters and, and that's critical, I think too. So even though I can't spend as much time as I'd probably like to because of, of work demands, the time I am spending is quality with them. And, and most importantly, the relationship is really strong. So they feel like they can come to me as they approach the teenage years, which are, you know, especially with Kayla or Lumen here pretty quickly. So, mm. um, so I don't know, that's, I guess that's my philosophy and then throw in fun. You know, I like to race cars. Uh, I like to play golf and I like to travel. So, you know, I, I you got to throw in a fair amount of fun in there too, so that you stay sane. And, um, you know, if you're working hard and doing things, there's no point in doing that if you're not enjoying your life. So, um, so it's, it's trying to take those three stools, your professional, your family, and your kind of personal time and, and, constantly triaging which one of those needs more attention do you um is there anything that you can extrapolate from racing cars to the political lobbying profession or is there any uh lessons in that yeah i mean uh particularly like in an endurance race if you're doing a 14-hour race you know uh, it's again taking the long view you know staying fast and keeping your foot on the throttle but you know, not taking stupid, risky maneuvers early on that can hurt you later. It's a long race, and you gotta, you gotta, uh, to take the long view. I think it's also, uh, it's funny. It's the, the the hardest races I've had is when I've actually been in the lead, right? And you've got everybody behind you trying to get past you, and and uh, and and uh, and hunting you down. So the most pressure you'll ever have is when you're when you're winning or you're in the lead. And I think it's a lot like that in the lobbying world. It's a really competitive business, and you know, when you're on top of your game, uh, you know, people are, are, are constantly kind of pecking at you and hunting at you. So um, there's a lot of similarities in that as well. So uh, and then just trying to stay calm under pressure um, is a high pressure business. Racing is high pressure and keeping your wits about you and making smart decisions in high pressure situations. is So there's there's a lot of parallels, actually. Um, who does it well in the lobbying industry? Um, I know uh, outside of your firm. And outside of the super, you know, the, you know, obviously Brian's uh, making money hand over fist, but mm-hmm. um, who, who does it well, you think, in the lobbying industry right now? Yeah, I mean, look, the guys that you mentioned, I mean, obviously Brian's in a whole another stratosphere and I'm happy for him. He's he's worked hard for a long time. And he's a smart and strategic guy. And he's, uh, you know, he's done incredibly well, not only at the state, but now, of course, at the federal level with with um, with his federal practice. Um, Southern Strategies, you know, has done a great job in their branding, right? Uh, they've got a strong team there, and then they've created a, an incredibly strong brand. And, uh, you know, Ron Book is a is a machine. I mean, I don't know how the guy works as hard as he does um, uh, and has as much business as he has with as, with as few people as he has. He's got a great people working with him. But, uh, I mean, the amount of success he's had has been uh, – and staying power over the years he's had is incredible. Uh, I think Bill Rubin and Heather Turnbull do a great job. Heather, I think, is one of the – the best people out there. Um, but there, there are, there really, you know, are a lot of great folks. I mean, Ron LaFace, my partner, I mean, he's, he's, 
uh, has a different style than me, but is incredibly effective and hardworking, and and uh, as well as a lot of the other folks in my firm. And I think what people Ron don't realize is way old school, isn't it? Like he is. He's a I grinder. Him, he is a grinder. He is. Um, as I've interacted more uh, with him, and I, it's just like he is. He is just old school. Like he is. Um, um, the in fact, I almost wonder, like, if he's more like, if he's a lot like, like, like Ronnie Book, where, like, Ron doesn't ever go to the Capitol, like Ron Book doesn't ever go to the Capitol unless he's dressed up, and and I think that like Ron LaFace carries that same thing on, and I guess maybe it's from his dad and whatnot, but he just seems like kind of a protector of the industry, um, and maybe that's both of you guys saying, you know, where you were talking about. You, you're coming at this from uh, going to law school and that it's a profession and that kind of thing where it's not just like, hey, I was a staffer for three years and now I'm going to go uh, do this over here because I'm done working on campaigns. Um, yeah, Ron grew up around the business because of his dad, who's a, who was a great guy. Um, and uh, and so, yeah, I think he's a protector of the profession. Uh, he's very traditional in that regard. And then he's just, uh, Ron has a completely different style than I do, but just as effective. He's just, uh, he's very substantive and he works his butt off. He's he's always at the Capitol super early and super late, uh, taking every opportunity to meet with people. So, um, and, and he's a fantastic business partner and a guy that, you know, I mean, he's like family to me, obviously. We've known each other since college and, you know, have started the firm together and have continued on. So he's, um, he's, uh, He's a great. We're, we're a great balance to each other too. I think because our styles are different, that um, us being together has, as a team, has made us stronger. Before I ask you my Corona questions, um, who was the, uh, where, what was the genesis of the uh, infamous uh, CCC uh, ugly sweater Christmas party? <laughs> I think I, I don't know. I, mean, those photos made, are I, I think that was a. Yeah, they are. They are. They are. I, I don't know why they keep getting out, but I think Ken, Ken Granger, I think, came up with it. We have a white elephant party, too, and I think he came up with that. He's always Ken is like really good at, uh, at, at you know, bringing the firm together and having fun activities. I think he's the one that came up with that, and it's just evolved from there. He's, he's, the, he's our spirited one. Okay, got it. Um, all right, so we've talked about it at the front end when did coronavirus get real for you um like beyond like oh there's you know this is happening when did it like hey this is going to be a a 9-11 like event you know i think it, it was it's actually crystal clear to me when that happened um we were we we do a, a ski trip every other year with the kids um to park city utah we were at deer valley and and um we do it in every other year because obviously when the when the session is uh, meeting in March, then uh, the spring break is kind of shot um, and we can't spend time with the kids. But when we have an early session like we did this year, um, you know, session ends right before their spring break and then we can go skiing. So we had booked a ski trip. And because coronavirus was starting to kind of get more serious right around that time, we had really were 50-50 in whether or not to go or not. My wife didn't really want to go and I kind of pushed her uh, to go. So we, we actually decided at about nine or 10 PM on Friday night, this, the night that session was ending because our flight was leaving at 7 AM the next morning on Saturday. So we said, well, let's just do it. We'll wear masks. We'll do this and that. So we fly out to, uh, to park city and rent a car and, and, um, go to the grocery stores. We had rented a, a condo. 
buy, you know, groceries for the week, um, go and walk down to rent skis for the kids. And I was, it was about five 30 at night. I just finished paying for the ski rentals for the week. Mm. And, um, literally right there, they said, Oh my gosh, uh, I got a announcement to make, uh, they're closing, um, park city mountain resort in deer Valley, um, mm. indefinitely because of Corona. And I'm like, wow, really? Like that just happened. Um, so we had just checked in, we had just gotten out there. We were planning on skiing. And then every ski resort in North America decided really to shut down right then and there. And, and then park city made an announcement that they were going to shut down all restaurants and bars, mm-hmm. um, like a day and a half or two days later. And that's when it became real, like a movie ma- moment, you know, that, wow, this is a, this is a pandemic, uh, a ski resort just shut down. A whole town just shut down. There's nowhere to go. Uh, nothing to do. Everyone's hunkering down. And that was, that was kind of the crystal clear moment with like, uh, oh my gosh, maybe we shouldn't have done this. And of course I heard it over and over again from, from Debbie that she told me <laughs> we shouldn't go. So, uh, I, which made it that much better. Like we can totally bougie out right now. And like, I love park city so much like that. We've been there twice now. Um, yeah, I mean, we go to the St. Regis, place. um, yep. like we, we went out there two years ago and just to just to do it because we were looking for someplace new and there's direct flights from Tampa. So you're out there in three and a half hours, which is really kind yeah, of a meet. Perfect. I mean, yeah, and you can't get you you can't get into like the other Colorado resorts that way. I mean you yeah. gotta get into Denver and then move and um and so that was cool. And then so we went back out there, Michelle needed to like kind of chill out after her dad passed, and so we did Thanksgiving out there again. And God, it's just the most beautiful place. It's beautiful. And the snow's great. The people are nice. People it's not, nice. you know, great restaurant scene, great I mean, restaurants. And it's not too uppity. Like it's a fairly casual environment and uh, the ski schools are great. I mean, look, I, I grew up skiing cause I grew up in upstate New York. And so I, you know, grew up skiing and I wanted my daughters to, to grow up skiing. It's a family activity for us. So we've unfortunately only been able to do it every other year, but you know, it's, it, um, you know, we weren't able to do it this year, obviously, because of uh, because of COVID. But it's a it's a it's a great place to go. A great place for families. It's everything about it is is wonderful. But yeah, that was my that was my holy crap. This is really real, and it was kind of my movie moment. And looking back, I don't think I was thinking clearly enough because I you know it was the last night of session. Um, I hadn't slept well in a couple of weeks, right? Because the, the last couple of weeks of session are so busy and intense. And I, you know, looking back, I'm like, why the hell did we go? It was probably not the right decision, but I wasn't thinking clearly. And um, anyway, so we stayed a couple nights and came back and none of us got COVID. So we're, we turned out okay. When, um, when are you going to travel again like that? Like, and I'm asking, asking for a friend because I'd love to know when you think uh, we can, uh, I think you and I basically travel not in the same circles, but like I hit New York, you're up there like a week earlier, yeah. you know, and it's like, we're hitting some of the same places. So when are you going to be back out there? You know, I hope, I hope relatively soon. I'm, I'm not going to be the first guy out there. Uh, <laughs> I, saw some of the, I saw some of the airlines, you know, implementing some PPE procedures on wearing masks like JetBlue, I think is going to make everyone wear, ma- wear masks. So I want to kind of see what the reopening looks like. Um, but I think certainly to be able to go to hotels or, a, you know, maybe a vacation rental where you're a little bit more socially distanced than in a hotel, yeah. um, 
you know, and go to the beach would, would be nice. So I'll probably start off doing something like that, that I can drive to a beach before I start jumping on planes. And, and before I, I go to, a, you know, a place like New York city where there's just, you know, there's so much spread and so many people, um, it'll probably be in a little less dense environment, um, than that to start off with, it, but I, I am getting the itch. Yeah. And I, this sounds like, especially when so many people are out of work, you're like, Oh really? But it's like, I kind of need a vacation. Like, cause, and I'm sure mm-hmm. I know you, we've been going since, you know, basically the beginning of the year because of session and we've been going at full bore. I mean, right. and weekends, I mean, we, I know like you, I mean, we were, we're, we're working seven days a week for, a month before coronavirus hit, if not seven days, you know, even earlier than that. And then we've been doing seven days a week and then some for the last, you know, for the last two months. And so it's like, yeah, I, I, it's not only do I need to get out, I just need a vacation. Like, I don't, I don't care if it's like, I I don't care if we, they open up the Econo lodge up the road. I just need to, you know, get away from the computer screens and all that stuff. Yeah. And I think everybody's buggy. I'll tell you what though, Peter, we're blessed to be able to be so busy. I do, you know, there's a lot of people out there I know. and, and I, I, I saw it, I saw it, you know, when, when we tried to do that spring break trip, I mean, I, I told my wife, I'm like, I feel worse for the, the, the worst I feel right now is not only of course the first responders and the people that have to, that are on the front line dealing with it, your, your doctors and your nurses and, and everybody that works at a hospital, all the employees there, right. That are, that are, exposed and are at risk and at risk of bringing it back to their families, but they're still showing up and doing it. Um, but these, you know, these bartenders and waiters and waitresses and restaurateurs and hoteliers and all these folks in the service industry that live paycheck to paycheck and spring break is there like those couple of weeks where everyone's out skiing or at the beaches for spring break, that's big money to them and how they help fund months of rent and food. And that just got wiped away, you know? And then I'm hoping that, you know, by Memorial Day weekend, uh, Florida's starting to function at a, at, a, at a relatively, we may not be 100%, but at a relatively high rate so that all these folks can get back to work and survive. Because I mean, you've got, one thing I will say that, that has been a, um, I guess a, a pleasant surprise to me has been how bad people want to get back to work. You know, there's this whole, you know, you hear the rhetoric out there, oh, people are lazy and they just want to collect unemployment or they'd rather not work. This is like the best thing ever for them to be able to sit home and watch Netflix. And that's proven to really be completely untrue. People are restless. They want to go back to work. Um, and that makes me proud of, right, of Floridians. It makes yeah. me proud of Americans. Sure. And uh, we're, you know, it just shows you our culture. In our culture, we're embedded to to work hard, to be around people, to earn livings. And it's a function of pride and respect to do it. And um, a lot of these people, through no fault of their own, have just had to, to stay home and can't work. And the amount of stress, emotional stress from financial pressure and from the pandemic they have to be under is just incredible. And so I think, you know, the most important lesson that we can all learn from this pandemic is that these types of things impact everybody differently. And what what's your stay at home uh, protocol is much different than than someone else's. And there are some people really, really suffering out there because of this. So it's, um, and we can be somewhat insulated from that, but we have to remember that. The, um, we are so blessed in the fact that as we're basically information workers. And I mean, my office, 
overlooks um, this house. There's a, a big house being uh, built across the street and then two more. And I'm just thinking about those poor sons of bitches, you know, you know, just constantly exposing themselves and having to, you know, then it's just so easy for me to be up here in my little office and um, I'm not having to risk my family or anything like that. It's just um, this whole situation. I've been I've I've talked about it on previous pods. I was really sad, almost depressed, um, you know, maybe two or three weeks ago. Like it was just like. I, I just couldn't, I couldn't, especially because I'm reading so much news and you're like reading about, you know, the people in Haiti that are dying and the people in Sri Lanka and you're like, oh my God, I got to get a, I just, I got to do something. Um, and, and, you know, I don't know. I don't you even know, know where that. The, the fact that you say that though, I will tell you, cause it is right. And it has a psychological impact when you're watching the news all day and mm-hmm. it's about COVID only. And it's, it's mainly negative news because the news doesn't seem to report any positive stuff. But that's why I thought, you know, one thing I I thought was great is when uh, the governor announced at his last press conference uh, about the uh, about the uh, jet company, the supersonic jet company coming to Mm -hmm. the the Space Coast and putting that into the conference, reminding people that life is still going on, reminding people that companies still do see value and a future in Florida to the fact that they're going to, you know, invest. I think it was three hundred million dollars was the number to to put the operations here. Like we need more of that in my opinion, because right now it's all just COVID related news on the national media and the state media. And there are other things going on. And that was a great reminder. I think that, that companies still see the potential in Florida that we're going to come out of this. Things are going to get better. They're going to invest hundreds of millions of dollars. And maybe it's just me, but to me, that was like a really a light spot. um, That was, that was a bright spot that was much needed given all the negative stuff we see every day. Well, I've got a newsletter sponsorship I'm going to hit you up with then because I've been wanting to do exactly that. Um, And you guys are so – you guys are good with your ads. But I've always – like this is is perfect then because it's like I've asked Janelle. I'm like, you know what? Everybody's getting bombarded and they're reading Sunburn and it's just like so depressing. I'm like, can we once a week do – here are 20 stories about the nurses that are doing this and the, yeah. the, the small business that's doing that and that kind of thing. And so um, we're going to get that off the ground. Um, I like it. We, you've been on for a while, but so I'm going to skip my other question and just ask you, what are some recommendations? Um, I, you know, what are you, what are you watching or reading uh, that you think the audience and see if you can try and beat Slater Bayless who gave the most, you know, as a, like his, I think he had been prepping for a couple of days on what, <laughs> like, on his book club recommendations. Um, it was like it was they were obscure enough that you didn't know them, but they were still written by like Pulitzer Prize winners. You're like, oh yeah, I'm I'm reading that too, Slater. Um, great job. <laughs> so uh, I don't uh, think mine will be that exciting. So you know, it's funny recreational reading. I just never get to do a lot of it because now, of all the reading I have to do for work, mm-hmm. but. I have um, I have taken the opportunity to read a little bit more with the downtime um, that I have found during during the COVID uh, crisis. And I, you know, one of the books I've always wanted to read that I just never got around to that I think I'm probably the last guy uh, in the state of Florida to read was is is Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. And I've oh. always heard great things about Outliers uh, in the book, and I read it finally, and it was fascinating. So I would highly recommend if you haven't read, if you're one of the few people like me who hadn't read Outliers. 
Uh, definitely. No, read no, it. no. Reading. You're the you're the person who admi- at least admits that they have it. Nobody's read it. That's right. They're just they they right. read, everyone they, they cites it, right? <laughs> but haven't actually read it. They it's saw actually a worth, magazine it's, article. It's worth the read. And they heard a podcast talk about it, but they actually haven't gone uh, because I think that's the one that starts off with the girls' basketball team. Is that the the guy? Yes, and hockey. Well, and hockey. uh, They talk about why why people make it, and really the basis of the whole book is there's a lot of circumstance associated with those who who become successful. There's a you know if you're born at the wrong time or. You yeah. don't grow up in the right scenario, both socioeconomic or geographically, um, that can impact your ability to be successful. And these folks who, who turn out to become outliers, there are specific scientific reasons that they can be tied back to as to what made them successful. So there's a lot of luck, a lot of circumstance, right? These are smart, hardworking people, but there are a lot of smart, hardworking people that don't ever make it. And so he analyzes why um, – why certain people make it one of the, the kind of where it starts off is hockey players. He did this analysis and why are yep. professional hockey players typically born in January or February? Well, it turns out, you know, they were, they're older than their classmates by about six months. And so they usually make the all-star team or the travel team and they have better coaching and get to play and practice more. And, you know, uh, they get to develop their skills. He also comes up with the theory, you know, that the talks about the theory of, uh, if you do something for 10,000 hours or more, that's when you become an expert in it. So, um, anyway, it's, it's great. Everyone talks about the book. I had never read it. I read it. I'm actually, I liked it so much that I'm reading his, uh, one of his other books called the tipping point on how things kind of catch on how, um, viruses and epidemics catch on. Um, and, I liked uh, blink. Uh, that was my, which always tells me to just trust my, you know, your first instinct. Um, I've got, I bought it. I haven't read it yet. I'm trying to yeah. get through all his books, I'm trying to get through all his books. So um, that uh, Netflix, right? Ozark season three is great. Uh, it was uh, so great. It was so uh, much better. Not, I mean, I don't want to disparage the first two, but this season was really, really good of Ozark. I thought it like, is. It really hit. And actually, you know the who's the the third person in Ozark? The the young lady who is the the native that runs the casinos for them. She, uh, she's, she's the best character on TV. She's fantastic. Uh, she She's I in a movie called The Assistant that came out today. Uh, for anybody that cares about that, it's kind of like a, you know, like a true to life about um, like Harvey Weinstein. And I've heard nothing but good things about it. And so um, well, she's great. She's a great character. She really is. Um, the plot against America. I don't know if you've watched that yeah, one, but that one's yeah. pretty good, too. Yeah. Well, that's my a little guy. slower, but yeah. That's my guy, David Simon, who's uh, director of The Wire uh, and Treme. And so um, that, you know, it was it's always interesting to see because that's not his. That's Philip Roth. That's not his source material. It's interesting to see what he does with other stuff. I thought it was, um, you know, it's as timely as when the book came out. And it's also I love period pieces like that. I love that era that, you know, post-war, but it's not post-war, but the 1940s New York mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Brooklyn and Hoboken and all like a Bronx tale. And that, you know, those guys were, you know, it, I, you know, that's where my mom's family came from. And I, I always like those, those, those movies and stories. Agreed. Yeah, no, it's a great one. And it's an interesting concept, right? So it's a twist on, yeah. on history. So it's um, what would have happened, you know? So if Lindbergh was president as opposed to FDR and we didn't get into world war two and it's, it's uh, it's interesting. It's a great piece. 
Um, all right, buddy. I've kept you. This is this is approaching Jamie Grant territory uh, in terms of <laughs> podcast length. But uh, I wanted to I wanted to make sure that people got to know a little bit more about you because you know we shoot we write about you a lot. You're quoted a lot, and so I, I'm glad you um, uh, shared some of that with us and appreciate your thoughts and. Thank you for coming on, and best to you and yours uh, through the rest of uh, the situation. You too. Uh, give my best to Michelle and Ella, and thanks for having me on. It's been fun. Stay healthy. All right, brother. Take care. All right, bud. Take care. Bye-bye.